Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. It is the Monday after week nine, a day before the first playoff rankings will come out. And Bruce, this past Saturday, saw um, quite the narrowing down of undefeated teams out there. We had seven undefeated teams go on the road, and I believe four lost. I guess I would ask, uh, which one of the undefeated teams that lost surprised you the most? You know what? I think Craig Ball is a terrific coach at Wyoming, but and and Boise had struggled the previous couple of weeks, but I, I was surprised to see them go down the way they did. Ah, but if you had read my picks column, you would have seen that that was the upset special. Congratulations to you. We both got our upset specials. For some reason, Missouri was... The spread was what it was, and I felt pretty confident that Kentucky was going to win that game. I had had a couple rough picks weeks before that, but this was a good week because I got that and Texas beating Baylor. By the way, I noticed your record on the season is... Uh, oh, you want to talk about rough weeks. I mean, last this past week, I think I went 8-4. and four. It was the first good week I've had picking against the spread since the opener. And so you were, what, like 16 under 500? I don't know if it was, it was it 16 or 14. I think it was 14 under, yeah. I mean, the previous two weeks, our friend Ralph Russo, I think he had tweeted that he went 3-19 and 19 against the spread the week before. I want to say that same week I might have gone 3-8 and eight against the spread. I had a week a couple weeks ago where I went 1-10 against the spread, but up until that, I think I was about 62% against the spread, so you knew it was going to catch up, catch up to me at some point. Yeah, I feel like these things even out. I remember there was one year I think I might have got like 30 and 5 in bowl picks against the spread. And I was like, yeah, next year I'm going to take a beating on it because it just, these things even out. Anybody who tells you that they, especially, you know, people who are in our business who really aren't, you know, it's not like we're in Vegas. We don't do this for a living. That's not why they hired us. But people seem to think it kind of sorts itself out. I think they do. I, I just don't think they really get what reporters do <laughs> necessarily. So Hey, we put our picks up there. They they get scrutinized. The only thing I'll say is that I always hear from people when I get things wrong. I never hear from people when I didn't hear from one person about getting uh, Baylor, Texas over Baylor, maybe because they were just as unsurprised about that as I was. Uh, Boise, though, the strangest part about that is that it was the deciding play was a safety. You don't see that every day. No, you do not. I, I'll be honest. I had uh, I had a busy night because I had my Stanford game against Arizona, which kicked off at 11 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so I didn't get a chance to see much of the Nebraska-Wisconsin game or very mu- or much of the Florida State-Clemson game. Any observations or takeaways from either of those? Uh, well, I would just say in general that Saturday to me – you know, it had two effects. One is that when these playoff rankings come out Tuesday, there's really probably going to be no suspense over the top four other than maybe a little bit of, you know, who's two and who's three. But the way it shook out, you've now got exactly four undefeated Power 5 teams in Alabama, Michigan, Clemson, Washington. I think Clemson will be number two just because it's a little bit more impressive resume than Michigan because they beat uh that Auburn win now at Auburn yeah, and is looking better and better. I keep hammering Michigan for not having the big road wins. They'll have a chance, obviously, at the end of the season. But Clemson beating uh, both Auburn and Florida State on the road, Louisville at home. So if they're really going by resume, I would think Clemson's number two. If they're going by just who's looked more dominant, then you would say Michigan. It doesn't really matter uh, if those are the four. So if it had that effect... I also found that it had a big effect on my Heisman top five. 
that I do every week, unlike past weeks where it seemed pretty uneventful. And of course, that started with Lamar Jackson uh, almost, almost surrendering his stranglehold on it before throwing that 29-yard game-winning touchdown. Where do you fall on... Because uh, I actually tweeted, semi-sarcastically, big all caps, Heisman, right after that throw. I got a lot of backlash to that. Oh, it was Virginia. Virginia's terrible. Da, 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 da. Yes, Virginia's not good. But aren't you more apt to give a guy credit for pulling that off at the end of the game than to say, well, it's Virginia. They never should have been in that position to begin with. Yeah, I, I mean, I watched a lot of that game, and he rallied them. Now, he threw a bad pick in the third quarter. And it was interesting on fourth and, I don't know, fourth and three as they were driving. I mean, the replay showed how close the ball was to being deflected. And who knows, you know, and him not completing it. So he wouldn't have had the touchdown drive in the last seconds of the game. And it shows you, you know, if they lose that game, I think we're talking, you know, if that ball gets batted down on fourth and three or whatever it was, you know, the Heisman race probably looks a lot different than it does right now. I mean, I'm with you. I, I give him a lot of credit for making those plays in the clutch. It is on the road. It's not, a you know, anywhere where you go on the road in conference. I agree, yeah. I think you have to, you have to give him some credit on that. Yeah, and so he remains number one. I do believe it remains his to lose. After that, though, there's about seven or eight names that you could shuffle around, and I wouldn't necessarily object to with one exception. I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. It is his to lose unless one thing happens. I know what you're going to say. If Leonard Fournette has a big game and it helps LSU knock off Alabama, you can bet he's going to be the number one guy. You watch. Now, I don't think that I don't think they are going to upset Alabama, but if that happens, I think that shakes the Heisman race. Yeah, up. I think he, I said this on uh, our sh- uh, the show we do with Kristen Balboni, the Facebook show on Saturday. I said. There's only one player out there who could pass Lamar Jackson without Lamar Jackson doing anything wrong, and that's Leonard Fournette. And I agree. Everybody will be watching this Alabama game if he goes off on them. Remember last year, they completely shut him down. It was uh, pretty unbelievable because going into that game, it was a lot like Lamar Jackson this year. He had been number one for what seemed like the whole season. Everybody's ready to crown him the Heisman winner in October, and they just shut him down, and that was the end of that. So... If he were to go for 150 yards and they beat Alabama, who's looked pretty unstoppable so far, I certainly think it puts him right back in the heart of it. Would he immediately move to number one on everybody's list? I don't know about that, but I bet it would be he and Jackson and one, two in some order. Yeah, and keep in mind, he would have a lot more of the country's focus, or college football's fans' focus at least, with the schedule they would play as opposed to Louisville, honestly, they get that Thursday night Houston game. But other than that, you know, they're they're low wattage games for people uh, the rest of the but way. But we should note he's missed three games to injury. He has, but as I said to you, I think the other day, he's missed basically stat pad games where, so he, basically he's averaging like nine yards a carry in SEC play. He hasn't missed any SEC, you know, worth, worth note. And also... The one non-conference game he played was at Wisconsin, which is one of the top ten defenses in the country. You know, so he, I mean, a lot of other guys would be running all over nobodies. So I'm not going to completely factor out that he okay he missed three games. That doesn't mean anything, but I don't think it means as much when you really look at it closely. And like you said, this is just the first of several big games down the stretch for him. In the meantime, though, just talking about through this past weekend. 
Um, you know, I thought we've talked on here in the past about how hard it is for a defensive guy because week to week they don't necessarily put up stats. People love to see stats. So the Michigan Michigan State game, and granted, Michigan State two and six now, hard to believe. But it was the big game in that window, and it's a big rivalry. A lot of people are watching it. And Jabril Peppers was everywhere. He had two fourth-and-one stops, including a sack on one of those plays. He you know, ran for a touchdown, as he sometimes does. And then even at the very end of the game, even though it was pretty much over, Michigan State decided to go for a two-point conversion with one second left, and they, it was a forced fumble, and he picked it up and ran it all the way back. For two points i went from not having him on there to putting him number two this week okay i mean i've had him on there before i usually use my fourth and fifth spots as kind of guys like on my radar kind of thing i mean i had jonathan allen from alabama he's their best defensive player uh i had him fourth last week i actually moved him up to third because i forgot who else i bumped out of there um you know, he is my kind of X factor guy right now. Earlier in the year for me, it was Derek Barnett from Tennessee. Uh, you know, it's been Peppers. We'll see. I think Peppers' chance is going to be when they get Ohio State at the end of the year. I mean, he's going to have enough stats if you want to make the case with tackles for loss and his return yardage for somebody to go, eh, if I want to do that, I could. I think it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. Jonathan Allen, I think it's much harder for him to even get to New York just because he'll have pretty good stats for a D lineman. But so, you know, there's guys on Alabama, Tim Williams and some of these other guys who are going to have more tackles for loss. And it's not like Indomitian Sue who just right. completely was, he wasn't a one man wrecking crew because they had another really good D lineman at Nebraska at the time, but he was, he was such a dominant force. Whereas Allen is, you know, one of many. I don't think Peppers can win the Heisman. I think he can get to New York. Maybe if he has, a- he'll need some helps too. I think, you know, I, I think he needs somebody, you know, if Lamar Jackson kind of struggles, I don't even stumbles, and let's say that Fournette, you know, and LSU go eight and four, because um, I don't think there's anybody else I look at and go, oh, that guy's going to get an overwhelming amount of the votes. I just don't see it. When you go through the lists of guys, whether it's, uh, you know, this crew of running backs, I don't think there's one guy out there that's really differentiating himself at this point from the others. You could argue either or. And I think the same thing with, you know, Jake Browning's kind of off a lot of other people's radar, even though he's he's putting up great numbers for a terrific team. So I think Peppers can make it to New York and whether or not he could win it. Jonathan Allen has no shot. And he's a great player, but like you said, it's it's uh he he's part of an ensemble on the Alabama defense. You'll watch the LSU game this week. Maybe he'll stand out, but maybe not. Maybe it'll be Tim a Tim Williams game. You know, maybe it'll be a Dalvin Tomlinson game. You never know who's gonna make the big plays. Minka Fitzpatrick uh, in a given day for Alabama, whereas Peppers, and that's a great defense too, but he always seems to make find a way uh, to distinguish himself. The guy that's become a bit polarizing, at least for at least for you and me, everybody else seems to not even be thinking about this. But so Saturday night, Florida State Clemson. Uh, this, believe it or not, was it was a great game, a very dramatic game, and it was the third time in the month of October alone that Deshaun Watson led a game-winning drive. Now, one of them was an overtime against NC State, but you know, game-winning drive against Louisville, and then a game-winning drive the other night. And we knew coming into the season he's a great player. He was a Heisman finalist last year. But if you watch that game, Clemson gets out, jumps out to a 14-0 lead, has the ball, looks like they're just going to run away with this thing, 
and he throws a really awful interception that Florida State sets up short field for Florida State, kind of changes the momentum. Same thing happens in the third quarter, throws another interception. He now has 10 interceptions on the season. I don't have him in my Heisman top five. I don't think you can justify that. In the Fox Avocado Room, this has become a recurring thing between myself and Matt Leinert, who has himself won a Heisman Trophy and is therefore, uh, you know, one of the more qualified people out there to talk Heisman. He thinks I'm nuts. He doesn't understand how I could possibly not have Deshaun Watson in the top five. What do you think? Uh, I don't think you're nuts. I think that he has been he's been shaky at times. The interceptions to me give me give me concern. I think he's he's one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And he's a guy I predicted, you know, would win it and I thought he would lead Clemson to a national title and he still might do those things. But I just think that they've had a bunch of drop balls over the course of the year. They've just been a little off. Now, in his defense, he's played some really, you know, he played at Auburn. That's a really good defense and it's on the road. You know, I mean, Louisville has a bunch of athletes. FSU certainly has a bunch of athletes. I mean, he's played a lot. I think he's played more tough teams than other guys, but still 10 INTs. You know where that ranks in the country right now, Stu? It's pretty high. Um, <laughs> I think there's somebody else who has 12. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. David Blau has 12 and Cooper Rush from uh, CMU has 11. There's you know a handful of other guys who have around there, but that's some of the worst in the well, country. I can put it in perspective for you. And this chart is in my immediate recovery column that went up Monday. If you want to see the full chart, I looked up the past five Heisman quarterbacks, Cam Newton, Robert Griffin, the third, Johnny Manziel, Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, their season stats. And then through Deshaun Watson's this season at the bottom, he has the lowest completion percentage, 63.5. His 7.7 yards per attempt is, not only the lowest, but considerably lower than a bunch of these guys who had 10 or more yards per attempt. His TD interception ratio is 22 to 10. Only one guy threw as many as 10 all season, and that was Jameis Winston. The others, single-digit interceptions for the season. His passer rating, I'll just read these off. Cam Newton's is 182. RG3's was 189.5. Manziel's was 155.3. Winston Mariota also in the 180s. Watson... 145.9 and then you know we think of him as a running quarterback too but his yards per game rushing uh considerably lower obviously than any of these guys other than Jameis so it, you know he's not having a Heisman season Clemson's having a great season you can pick apart you know they've been sloppy at times no question about that there's an amazing stat by the way Clemson nine and one in their last 10 games where they lost the turnover battle uh, which has been a recurring thing this season. So, you know, you go on the road to Florida State at night and you win. I don't care how you did it. But in terms of him individually, you're kind of looking at it lazily to me if you think he's had one of the five best seasons. Can he still win it? He can still win because we seem to be in the minority here. You know, if you look at every you know, like ESPN's Heisman poll of all their voters and whatnot, he's always second or third. He's always right up there. Everybody just keeps putting him in there. Because of the, I think because of the kind of, and I don't like it, the best player on the best team mentality. They are number two or number three in the country and undefeated, and everybody knows his name. So I think there people just keep throwing him in there. So could he win it? Yeah. Do I think he should win it? Only if he dramatically improves his production here down the stretch. Uh, I'd be curious what the most interceptions a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback has ever thrown in a season. Well, 
you would be surprised at that answer. I mean, you have to go back a ways, but people used didn't used to really pay much attention to that. I want to say maybe a Gino Toretta. Some well, I remember looking at one of those guys' stat lines and being like, "How did this guy win the Heisman?" Because people didn't seem to care about that as much, or just quarterbacks in general threw more interceptions. I mean, you know, we've gotten pretty spoiled here. Some of those guys' names who I just rattled off had, you know, not just great seasons, historic seasons. Mariota, and by the way, this includes the bowl game. I don't remember what it was through the regular season. Mariota's 42-4 to touchdown to interception ratio. Uh, yeah, he was spectacular. By the way, Gino Toretta never threw double-digit interceptions bad. I shouldn't have tried career. to just blindly guess a name like that, but... You know, there were definitely guys with well into the double digits, but it was a different time. Quarterbacks are becoming more and more efficient. Yeah. Let's talk about running backs here because this is, feels like it's been the year of the running back. Uh, and there's a bunch of guys that I, I think you could make a decent case for probably four guys to be on your Heisman you know, watch at this point. Uh, we, had, we had we had two guys each on our Heisman top five this weekend, and they were two different guys, two different sets of guys. So defend your two. Um, Dalvin Cook, and again, this goes to how fickle the Heisman race is. If they Florida State pulls out that game, Dalvin Cook would be probably number two or three on everybody's Heisman list this week. He was so He was so clearly the best player on the field. He never, to me, stopped being one of the best players in the country. But because they now have three losses, he's probably got no shot. But I had definitely had him in there. You remember, he had one long run called back, and he still ended up with four touchdown runs. And I believe 169 yards on 19 carries. So he's one of them. The other is Donnell Pumphrey, who I've had in there almost every week. Um, I think since that Cal game. I believe that was week two. And this one has snuck up on me a little bit. Obviously, he's leading the country in rushing by a considerable margin. San Diego State pointed out that the margin between him and the number two uh, running back in terms of rushing yards is higher than the difference between number two and number 21. So he's having a phenomenal season. He's had four 200-yard games. But here's the part that surprised me or caught caught me off guard. Uh, That game the other night, he moved up to number five on the NCAA all-time rushing list, career rushing list. We think of that record, at least, you know, when Ron, when Ricky Williams broke it, it was such a big deal. When Ron Dane broke it the next year, also a big deal. They won. They both won Heisman's for breaking that record. He doesn't just have a chance to break Ron Dane's record. If he remotely keeps up his pace, he will break it before the regular season's over. And I feel like nobody is talking about that. I think that's probably true. Look, when... When I say to you, was Ron Dane a great running back? I, I feel like he's one of those guys who was a really good player in a very, in a very good system that was kind of catered towards it. I, I think if you run for more yards than anybody's ever played the sport, you were a pretty good college running back. I'm not saying he in wasn't fact, a really he good had college two, running back. Not one, but two 200-yard Rose Bowls. My point is, I think when you're talking about this, here's, here's my, my one knock on Donnell Pumphrey. I mean, he's a terrific running back. Do you know how many teams that he has faced this year that have winning records in FBS? I guess you're going to tell me not many. Not many. He hasn't faced one yet. Not one FBS team with a winning record. That has a winning record. I assume that's about to change. Uh, Also, here's the other concern for me with him. So 
there is when you look at the NCAA uh, rush, running defense stats. There's you know there is it's not like the Mountain West isn't represented. Problem is he's not running against his own running defense. Like San Diego State is the one team that has a really good rush defense. The other team that's decent is Air Force. He hasn't played them yet. I mean, you look at some of the teams he faced. I mean, they're really bad. Okay, so his last four, Hawaii, Nevada. I don't think either of those teams are considered any good. The Hawaii is having a bit of a surprising season. Then he goes at Wyoming, who Craig Bowl is just doing a phenomenal job there. In fact, he will go against the number two running back in the country, no, number three running back in the country, Brian Hill, in that game. And then um, he finishes with Colorado State. If they win their division, which I assume they will, they would face likely Wyoming or Boise in the uh, championship game. I mean, there is a whole thing to be said about just the fact that he's a group of five player. And that's one thing I wanted to bring up. I think the fact that he has gotten almost no attention speaks to just how marginalized those conferences have become. Because if you think back to not that long ago, uh, Jordan Lynch, just a few years ago, became a big national story, ended up being a Heisman finalist. And if you go back a little bit further than that, I mean, I feel like there used to be a time when whoever the star player in the MAC was, Byron Leftwich, Chad Pennington, Ben Roethlisberger, those guys were were stars uh, in college. And it's just nobody pays any attention to these teams or these conferences anymore because we're so focused on the playoff race. Yeah, just to, by the way, just so you know, um, of those seven FBS opponents he's faced. He's two of the three worst run defense in the country, Fresno State and Cal. He's playing. So you just want to totally rain uh, on this guy's parade. No, I don't. I just want to he's, I just want to give you some context. Let's face it. He doesn't stink. He doesn't stink. He's really good. But is really good. I mean, this is the reason why I didn't have him my Heisman top five. I kind of went back and looked at some of the teams he's playing. Yeah. Fair point. Fair point. Um, maybe that's why there are so many Mountain West running backs very high up in this. Because the defenses are so bad. The other point I should make, and, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this. Ron Dane played in a time before they counted bowl stats. If you counted his bowl stats, his record is, Pumphrey's not going to be able to touch it. And that, of course, is true of everybody that played in that time. And then not only that, 12 game seasons, conference championship games, bowl games. Believe it or not, he has already played in one more career game than Ron Dane did. So how badly does that cheapen the record for you if he gets it? Uh, I think it does to some degree. I don't say badly, but, you know, I mean, I, th- I think we have to have context on all these things. That's, that's my only yeah, point. Yeah, and it came um, up a few years ago when Monty Ball broke the uh, all-time touchdown record and everybody pointed out how many more games he had played. You know, in an ideal world, the NCAA, I don't know, go back and re-add the bowl stats, but they're not going to do that, so... The record is what it is. And the other thing I would say is uh, I remember thinking a few years ago that nobody was ever going to touch that Ron Dane record because you just don't see many players anymore that run the ball that often. You know, we were just this is a different time. We A big running back by committee is more common. Uh, people are more leery of wearing guys' bodies down. I, if you saw the Michigan game, I mean, sorry, the yeah, the Michigan-Michigan State game. Uh, L.J. Scott was tearing it up for Michigan State. He had 10 carries on the first drive, and then they immediately sat him, presumably because you don't want to run a guy into the ground. Um, So I didn't think anybody could do it. In fact, I thought if a guy was good enough to be on that pace, then clearly he was going to turn pro after three years. So 
Um, this is kind of an unusual case in that regard. You spent a lot of time on my two guys. Who are your two guys? So my two guys, I had mentioned Fournette. I have him fifth. I mean, again, nine yards of carry in SEC play. Um, the other one, and I do, I, you know what? I do think Leonard Fournette is the best running back in college football. I hate to put just that stamp on it, but I feel like when you watch him play, he's different than everybody else. Fournette and Dalvin Cook are the best, just pure talent-wise, are the best running backs in the country. You know, I would have put McCaffrey in that conversation last year. Obviously, he hasn't been the same player this year for many reasons. But you do have to take actual production into account. So I say that, and I'm open to putting Fournette in there soon. But again, he hasn't even played that many games yet. Fine. Um, my other guy is a guy I feel like gets under uh, underappreciated, uh, and that's Deontay Foreman from Texas. He's number two in the country in rushing. He's averaging over well over 200 yards a game when they play ranked opponents, which I think carries some weight. And I think he has been the one go-to guy in a program that has been kind of in a wash with chaos. And I give him a lot of credit for that too. Do I think he can win it? No. Do I think he deserves a chance to get to New York? Yeah, I do think he does. And um, I know that's probably, again, I use my you know fourth and fifth spots in my Heisman watch as kind of, because we only get three, when the official ballot comes out, we only get obviously three. Um, but I think he deserves some special you recognition. You say he's averaging he's 200 yards against ranked? Over 200. Well, that's yes. primarily then because of this Baylor game. Cause I'm, and, and by the way, he's had a, a great season. Well, he had a pretty big game against Oklahoma, too. He had 159 yards against Oklahoma. Look, he's had a great That's season. Not bad. He has yet to. I'm going to just read off the totals 131 against Notre Dame, 157 against Cal, 148 against Oklahoma State, 159 against Oklahoma, 136 against Iowa State, 124 against Kansas State, and 250 against Baylor. No question. That's a fantastic season. Why do you think he is? You, would, you wouldn't think a star running back at Texas, of all places, would be able to fly under the radar. Is it just because they're so they've been so bad? They have four losses. They've been so bad. By the way, this, he became the first thousand yard running back at Texas in almost a decade, which is great. Texas, Since, uh, Jamal Charles, yeah. right? Think about when they had Cedric Benson, Jamal Charles, uh, Ricky Williams. Obviously, it's hard to believe it's been that long since they had that one go to running back. Yeah, also just, I mean, and this is a stat you can kind of twist as, as much as you want, but, um, you know, he ran for 250 against Baylor and like put the program on his back, I felt like. Baylor, you know, you can say what you want about their competition that they played, but they've been tough to run against. I think they're in the top 35 uh, in in run defense. I think they, even after Foreman ran all over them, they still only average, I'm looking at this now, 3.7 yards of carry. By if the way, you were Notre... to look up the teams they've played, it would be look a lot like the Oh, it's bad. Run. It's bad. But it's bad. By the way, though, Notre Dame has, has pretty good run defense. Where do you think uh, Baylor goes from here? Because I kind of all thought once they started playing decent competition, like I didn't pay any attention to them being ranked in the top 10, being six. Because I just had a feeling reality would set in soon, and it did here against Texas. Are they going to... Is that going to turn out to be a blip and they'll still be their usual kind of 10-win team? If you had to guess right now, what will Baylor's record be at the end of the season? Nine and three, ten and two. So just like in the preseason, you're a bit more on the optimistic side than I am. I am because, I, I mean, and maybe it's because I've seen them in person. They still have a lot of talent. I, I mean, 
you know, Seth Russell, I think, is inconsistent as a passer sometimes. But you see, he can. He's a real threat for you know defenses because he can run. I think they have a they have three really really terrific running backs, and they have speed at receiver. I mean, that all immediately puts people in a bind. I mean, I think on the starting twenty two, I think the only team that probably has as much talent as them in the conference is Oklahoma. The end of that game was where, and it, it actually wasn't just the end of the game, but it pr- pronounced there, where I felt was was where you really noticed the no Art Bryles effect. They went very, very conservative in their play calling, like surprisingly so. And I just feel like Art Bryles would never have. I mean, it's his son calling the plays. I don't think Art would have stood for that. I think they would have, you know, they would have been their usual kind of balls to the wall team. So the, you look at the rest of their schedule. You know, they're playing TCU this week. TCU, uh, rough, rough season they're having. Um, At Oklahoma, I'm going to chalk that up as an L. K-State at home could go either way. Texas Tech and Arlington could go either way. At West Virginia at the end, I'll say eight and four. Better than I predicted in the preseason. Who has been your biggest disappointment in that conference? Well, obviously TCU because I picked them to win it. Why do you think you were so wrong on them? It's kind of similar actually to Michigan State, right? Sometimes there are programs and there are coaches who you feel like their track record of reloading is so good that you're willing to overlook, you know, the numbers of returning starters or that sort of thing. And so, yes, I thought they would be better on defense. They've gotten no better on defense. They may be worse. I'd have to look up the stats. And, you know, they are a shining example right now. What is the opposite of shining example? They are a glaring example of... What happens sometimes when these teams install these air raid offenses? Gary Patterson's universally regarded as one of the best defensive coaches. They installed this offense two years ago, and they actually still had a pretty good defense that first year with Boykin, but the last two years, they look like any other one of these Big 12 teams that can't tackle and can't, um, you know, can't do much. Again, I think maybe the expectations were a little inflated on and them. And Kenny Hill, we should yeah. mention, it's not just the defense. You know, high hopes for Kenny Hill uh, as Boykin's replacement. He's been a he's been frankly a disappointment. I feel like I, I botched two predictions in the SEC. One was Auburn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is I think I gave too much credit to the defensive leadership in the Tennessee locker room, and clearly not enough uh, on the other side of the ball because they are really. I'm, right I'm now. feeling I'm regretting that I didn't trust my initial instincts on Tennessee for the first four or five games of the season and thought they were going to implode at some point. They won me back actually at the A&M game and the way they came back in that one, even though they lost, but no, this team is a train wreck. And in fact, as we're recording this, Butch Jones just confirmed that Jalen Hurd, who you would say probably is the closest thing to a star on that offense. Jalen Hurd is transferring. Eight games into the season, Jalen Hurd has decided to transfer after they lost to Muschamp and South Carolina, who is starting a true freshman quarterback. So this team has gone from the talk of college football when they were 5-0 and and pulling off all these comebacks every week to, barring a complete collapse by Florida, they are not going to win the SEC East in a year when the SEC East is as bad as it's probably ever been. Yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, this is a team that I, I keep going back to, and this is probably because I know some of these people, but uh, the roller coaster ride, if you were a Tennessee fan, 
I mean, has any fan base been through more of a chaotic ride in the last seven or eight years than Tennessee fans? I mean, just think about this because, I mean, look, what's up? I'm just kidding. No, I mean, seriously. I mean, you see everything from the end of the former era to the craziness of Lane's season there to the disappointment of Dooley and what a debacle that was. And then they get Butch Jones and they start to believe and start to believe. And it's a lot of, you know, uncertainty. I want to feel like last year was a lot more disappointment, even though the record looked okay. And then all of a sudden, you know, things start to seemingly fall their way. And then once the air comes out of the balloon and now, you know, this, this Jalen Hurd story, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm curious to see where they go from here. I mean, is it the rest of the schedules is tame? I mean, they should win the rest of the games, but they should have beaten South Carolina. The game um, that becomes more interesting than you ever would have imagined. Kentucky. Kentucky is currently, and that's what's really like slap in the face. Not only is Tennessee no longer in first in the East, they're now in third behind Kentucky. Uh, they play Tennessee Tech this week. Then they play Kentucky and Missouri at home and at Vanderbilt. Frankly, and, and we should mention, they've had a ton of injuries. We know that Tennessee is a mash unit on defense. Yeah, they're without three of their best four players on defense. But the other night wasn't because of the defense. They couldn't move the ball on offense against South Carolina. So I would say on the surface they should win these last four games, but uh, you know nothing is guaranteed right now. And if they do lose even one, if they lose to Kentucky, if they lose to Missouri or Vandy, and they finish 8-4 and four in a year when – Everything everything was building toward this season. The recruits are finally experienced. I mean, that's that's a, a profound disappointment. At what point would they have to consider firing him? I mean, I think it would have to be a couple of more losses. In yeah, there. I don't think you fire him off nine and three. No, you can't. You know, I, I also keep in mind now this is a program that doesn't have an AD, so there's an AD search that's in the process. That's probably to Butch's advantage this year, but. You know, look, if you're a Tennessee fan, what reason would you have right now to think that Tennessee, which program would you be more bullish on going forward in the SEC East? Florida under McIlwain, Tennessee under Butch Jones. You'd have to say Florida. I mean, they feel much more stable at this point. And I think, you know, look, they, they beat a, I feel weird saying this, undermanned Georgia team, but that's kind of what it was. They shut them down. Yeah, held them to under 200 yards. I mean, I think what you said at the beginning, you know, beginning of this is it was so accurate. I mean, I can't remember a time since it's been in existence of two divisions where the SEC East has seemed this bad. Yeah, because you could usually count on Georgia to be in the mix. Georgia's two and four in the SEC. Um, it's just, I had a feeling it would be a rough first season for Kirby Smart. I didn't think it would be this rough. Kentucky, who. Uh, opened the season losing to Southern Miss and in, and lost uh, 45-7 to Florida and 34-6 to Alabama, is now 4-2 and in the conference and second place in the East. But they can do that by beating Missouri, who's awful, Mississippi State, who's awful, and Vanderbilt, who's awful. When basically five out of the seven teams in the one division, or you would use the word bad, Tennessee, I don't know what you would use for them right now. Obviously, they were bad the other night, but I don't think they're a bad team. Florida is the one that, frankly, would be very interesting to watch down the stretch. Florida has just, to me, has just been forgotten about, and part of the reason is they only, you know, they they had um, the game canceled on October eighth. Then they played Missouri. 
and then they had a bye week. So they only played two games in the month of October. They'll close here at Arkansas, South Carolina at home, at LSU, at Florida State. This is a big game this week at Arkansas, who is definitely beatable. Because there is still a scenario, as crazy as it sounds, where Tennessee would win the East at 5-3 and because they have the tiebreaker over Florida. Florida now has the, the wiggle room to lose once, and I think you would say at LSU would be the, the most likely there, but not twice. I still had thought that the SEC, you know, based on largely on the strength of the SEC, top of the SEC West, that's really Alabama, is still, even if the gap has narrowed dramatically, uh, the best conference out there. And I think right now we'd be talking about whether it's versus the ACC or versus the Big Ten. Um, am I wrong? I mean, do you think that the SEC might not be the best league this year, given how bad the SEC East is? But also remember, you know, Mississippi State gave up like 600 yards to Samford. They already lost this season to South Alabama, who's not very good. Arkansas is really bad. You know, I mean, yeah, Auburn is looking looking better, but uh, and and LSU is looking better, but you know, we really, you know, we'll see how good those are really when you know they face Alabama. I will let it play out. You know, the SEC has a lot of rivalry games at the end of the year out of conference. You know, if Florida were to beat Florida State, that would certainly be, uh, you know, a big achievement for them. But I don't know. I don't know how you can say they're the best conference if. We just ruled out basically almost an entire half of the conference. I think right now I'd say it's the Big Ten because you feel very good about Michigan, Ohio State, Wisconsin. Um, Nebraska got the first loss the other night, and I know they played a light schedule, but it was overtime on the road. We'll see how they do at Ohio State this week. Um, You know, Do they have their bad teams in Purdue and Illinois and Rutgers? Certainly. I guess you got to say Michigan State's bad. They're 0-5 in the conference. Um I don't know. Now that I'm looking at it, I don't know if I would say that. It may, maybe it's just not very clear-cut who the best conference is. Because, yeah, the Big Ten still got probably half the conference that you would also say is, is pretty mediocre. I would say that maybe the ACC this year is a better case to be made. You know, Clemson's very good, even if they have their moments of looking shaky. I mean, they still won at Auburn, by the way, which, again, now we should give them more credit. Uh, Louisville, I think is good. Wake Forest doesn't suck anymore. I mean, I, you know, would I pick Wake Forest head to head against, uh, Arkansas? No, I wouldn't. But, uh, I now at least some of these bad, really bad teams, Wake Forest, Syracuse doesn't look so bad. You know, NC state is okay. Boston college finally won a conference game. Those, and you know, Virginia has the worst record. Those are the dregs of the, uh, of the conference. You know, North Carolina's pretty good. Virginia Tech is pretty good. Pitt is pretty good. Virginia Tech lost 45 times. I, I think Virginia Tech's gotten a lot better since that game, but they did lose 45-24 to Tennessee. This little exercise we just did just made me re-up on the SEC. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even mentioned we haven't even mentioned A&M. A&M fans are upset with me because I have them ranked below for, uh, two lost Wisconsin. I just think that the schedule Wisconsin has played, which is one of the hardest I've ever seen through eight games, I don't think there's any shame coming out of that with two close losses. Top of the Big Ten is is the best. Uh, I don't think we can argue against that. All right, we'll we'll get back to the podcast in a second. But first, we want to tell you about Identity Guard. And Bruce, I've asked you this question before. I'm going to ask it again. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? I have. It's a terrible feeling, too. It is. It's awful. Even if you found it in five minutes. Because if you're like me, 
your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster financially, emotionally, even physically that could take years to unwind. That's why you should protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in this business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles, sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com slash podcast. So let's get to the top of the Big Ten. So there's, I, I got a little bit of blowback because I did not have Ohio State that high in my top ten. I've watched Ohio State uh, probably as much as I've watched any top ten team this year. I watched their game against Northwestern. Uh, I certainly, you know, know they lost to Penn State, which could could actually go ten and two. I mean, it's not unrealistic when you look at the rest of their schedule that they could do that. How, where do what do you think about Ohio State right now? The Northwestern game was the one where I said, okay, I can no longer kind of spin this. You know, they just don't have a, a deep passing game to speak of, and uh, and that was actually probably their defense has been so. Dominant. That was probably their worst defensive game. Clayton Thor. They made Clayton Thorson uh, look like a much better quarterback than he probably is. What do you think of Northwestern's receiver Austin Carr? I knew we'd get to this. Somebody tweeted to me, "Austin Carr is the best player out there today," and I was like, "That's probably the first time I would have heard that phrase in 40 years." Do you remember the other Austin Carr? Austin Carr is a for people who don't know is a former walk-on, I believe, fifth-year guy at Northwestern who almost out of nowhere this year. He has, has emerged as this go-to, I believe he is, yes, he is the leading receiver in the Big Ten. And against an Ohio State, say what you want about Ohio State on offense, their secondary has been unbelievable. Eight catches for 158 yards the other night, in, or the other day in the horseshoe. Their secondary has been really good. They do have a couple of weak spots that they definitely attacked. Uh, and I think that is probably an issue that maybe is going around. I'm curious to see how it gets my opinion of Ohio State it. is this. If they were playing Michigan tomorrow on a neutral field, there is no question I would be picking Michigan. But there's still a month left in the season, and I have seen Urban Meyer do this before, where he figures things out. And, you know, part of me still feels as dominant as Michigan has looked, that it's a bit deceiving because they've not played anybody with a pulse on the road, and that it's just hard for me to imagine Urban Meyer and Ohio State losing to them at home. Even though there's no question, Michigan has looked like a much better team. How how easy was it for you to imagine them losing to no, Penn State? But that was at least on the road at night on a Saturday night. This is in the horse. This is gonna be in the horseshoe. Penn State, by the way, has way, way, way less experience than what Michigan has. I mean, I'm not, never mind just the talent. Michigan's loaded with guys who are like fourth and fifth year guys. I mean, it's, Michigan is has such a senior heavy lineup that I'm, I don't know how they're going to field a team next year. Like, <laughs> their window this year is is important. It's important that they do this, that they win the Big Ten this year because it's uh, almost like a start over next year. But it's very impressive. I mean, Michigan, there, there's no spot on Michigan where you say, "Well, that's their weakness," right? You know, they they're they're loaded top to bottom on defense. Um, it's hard to imagine a much better you know, kind of one-two punch on defense than having Jordan Lewis um, as your lockdown cover guy and Peppers just all over the field. 
and a really good defensive front in, in well, front yeah, of those of the guys best to, to get after in the people. country. I think what's caught me a little off guard about Michigan is they are much more explosive on offense. You know, last year he was basically just running it up the middle and, and hoping for the best and occasionally throwing to Jake Butt. But no, they've got um, they've got fantastic receivers. Spade is better than I thought he would be. Running their running game is not going to blow anybody away, but it gets it done. So you know they are ever they are the what number two team in the AP poll. They, I mean, I think people would say that other than Alabama, yeah, they're they legit, look the best. But they're legit. You wear when you about the first time they actually play somebody decent on the road. I know I'm going to kick myself for doing this, but Austin Carr averaging has over 200 more receiving yards than anybody else in the Big Ten. Here's why this is such a cool story, even though this is probably, you know, crack to you, Stu. Uh, he only had 23 catches in the previous two years combined. I mean, 58 catches far and away. He has 50, you're right. He has 58 catches. Nobody's close to him. The next highest is Curtis Samuel with 44. If the Big Ten were to have its Offensive Player of the Year voting right now. Say it. Say it on this podcast. I think Saquon Barkley would deserve it, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, seriously, I mean, what are they four and four? I don't know. He would deserve some consideration. Saquon Barkley would have a good argument. He's averaging 111 yards per game. Guess who's number two? Who would have thought Northwestern would have the leading receiver by a country mile and then the number two running back who's only three yards a game behind Barkley? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I would assume most people would have assumed that it would be JT Barrett, and maybe he still ends up there at the end, but right now I don't think he would get that vote. No, I don't think so either. We'll see what he can do against Michigan. Really, that'll be the test. Who do you think is averaging the most passing yards per game in the Big Ten? Uh, my guy David, David Blau, Blau from Purdue. There you go. All right. I feel like I, I probably spend a little too much time keeping going. Is this because you see a lot of the noon Eastern Big Ten games because you know you're waiting for your game to start? That's actually a little of it. The other part is, I mean, I, I keep an eye on Purdue. Like I dealt with David a bunch on my TV book. I thought David is an awesome kid. He's one of those guys I kind of like. Happy to see him, you know, do well. I mean, I know he's throwing some picks, but he's still young. I know you got to go, but I think the Pac-12 fans are going to kill us. We haven't even mentioned anybody in that conference to this point. And Washington had a big win the other day against Utah. Although Joe Williams continues to be one of the most amazing stories in college football. He had another big game uh, against a very good Washington defense. Uh, I think that, you know, Washington down the stretch is obviously the team everybody's going to be focused on. But sneaky good story coming up, uh, happening in your backyard with USC and Sam Darnold. I noticed that the LA Times threw out there, is Sam Darnold now the best quarterback in LA? You know, I I don't want to speak for the Rams on this, but I had uh, when I did their game against Arizona, I had a bunch of stuff ready for that game, and had talked to a coach in the conference who said Sam Darnold, not Josh Rosen, is the best quarterback, the most talented quarterback they've faced in a long time. And I've done a couple of other Pac-12 games, and I've talked to coaches in that league. That is now come up from three different guys in that league that. Be, his arm is comparable to Rosen's, and Rosen's a pretty good athlete, but Darnold is a better athlete. Now, I the thing I've heard a little bit is Rosen's, you know, got a, he maybe has a little better touch on the ball, but he is, uh, Darnold saved 
the season for USC. I mean, he is a very, very gifted kid. And his story is cool because he was not a big recruit. When he committed to USC, he was a three-star guy. They had already had five-star you know, quarterback, Ricky Town. And he wasn't a big recruit because he missed most of his junior year with an injury. And he, because he's a really good basketball player, he didn't spend much time on the seven-on-seven circuit where a lot of these guys get hyped up on the online recruiting business. So very, very cool story. And I watched all of the Cal game. He's a big dude who can run, who has a strong arm. And frankly, I'm just puzzled why he wasn't the starter from week one. Now, there have been various conspiracy theories about that, 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 Clay? I don't think those are conspiracy theories. I think that's... You believe the theory that Clay Helton just knew they were going to take a beating against Alabama and, and Stanford in those early... Se- so he just kind of threw out Max Brown as a sacrificial lamb. No, I think he felt like, you know what, I don't know if I want to throw this kid who doesn't know the offense quite as well as Max Brown does. Remember, you know, I, I, I don't think it was anything nefarious or that, hey, this, you know, Max Brown is a grad transfer. He could leave and then I'll have nothing behind a redshirt freshman i don't think it was quite like that but um all right well we have to end this one a little bit abruptly unfortunately but next to the podcast episode we're going to focus on the big lsu alabama game hopefully we're going to get a good guest for that and of course we're going to answer your emails so send them to the audible pod at gmail.com see you next time